blackmail. We had an agreement! I'm making a new agreement. Treachery. What we need to do is bring the Romulans into the war on our side. Deception. When they're finished with us, they're coming after you. Tactics of war. No one wants to see the Dominion destroyed more than I do. Or Cisco's weapons of choice. As far as you're concerned, you're working for me. On the next Star Trek Deep Space Nine. Transfer complete. Hello and welcome to Subspace Transmissions, the podcast where two Trek fans step into the arena and tackle the best, worst, weirdest, wildest, and everything in between that Star Trek has to offer. I'm Cam Smith and join me on the bridge. This is Tyler Orton handling a whole lot of data rods. And we're here this week to talk about In the Pale Moonlight and its legacy in the world of Star Trek. Yeah, 23 years this week, Cam, it aired. Uh, We're just that inspired by the year 23, of course. But this was just such a episode of Deep Space Nine that I think stood out from the pack for obvious reasons. But if you just go and look at how it's rated and how it's endured over the years, it's highly well regarded, despite the fact that I think it could also be highly polarizing. I think we want to really address some of the questions that it raised maybe talk about how this might be one of the most radical episodes of Star Trek to ever air, and then dive into its legacy after 23 years this week. Well, I want a little bit of background here, because you were watching this at the time it aired, right? Absolutely, for sure. Okay, and did it seem like a big, like, shake-up kind of event when you had finished that hour of television back in 1996 or whatever it was? Yeah, so... The deal with me is um, Deep Space Nine was running in syndication, and I would not get it until the end of the week. It would air on Saturdays where I was, which would mean that a lot of Star Trek fans would be populating the boards, like the the BBS, you know, what have you. Mm -hmm. And there would be discussions going on, I think starting maybe Sundays, but generally I don't think until maybe Tuesdays. I I forget the exact schedule for the syndication rollout, but um, I just remember... (laughs) Somebody writing like the name of a thread and saying, oh my god, you have to watch this week's episode of Deep Space Nine. I was like, huh, I wonder what that means. And it wasn't as if it had been built up in my head. Like I kind of knew the gist of it, that it was about, you know, Cisco seeing if he could get the Romulans into the war. And I watched this and I, I it felt like no other episode of Star Trek before because you just see your main character absolutely compromised in a way that you just wouldn't see that with, say, Kirk or Picard, for example. So this one really did stand out at the time. There was a lot of discussion about, you know, this one's great. And then a lot of people were like, well, I don't know. Like, is this really kind of the the quote-unquote Roddenberry vision that you and I <laughs> often roll our eyes at? Because I, I know a lot of fans out there believe in the Roddenberry vision. You and I both agree no such thing really exists. It's, it's kind of... Um, it's evolved based on his own personal feelings and it's been kind of captured by other people and they kind of dictate what the Roddenberry vision is or whatever that means. If people really wanted the Roddenberry vision, they'd be rewatching the first two seasons of TNG more often. <laughs> or, or just the the motion picture on a loop. Yeah, well, exactly. I mean, that is the, the That's last the Roddenberry examples. vision. Yeah, it is. Yeah, the last examples of it, yes. 
Yeah. So it can't. Okay, this one had been built up, you know, for you before you actually watched in the pale moonlight. What, what were you thinking going into this? Okay, so I remember I when I started DS9, you had built this one up for me, and um, I don't know that I had any idea what to expect to be honest with you, uh, other than, you know, it's the further developments of the Dominion War. But I do remember being kind of shocked watching it because at that point in my life, I'd watched the original series. Um, I had, I'd had i watched some TNG. But to see a captain in the position Cisco was in, I mean, right from the outset, you have a character saying, I have to justify what I've done, which is essentially telling the viewer, the captain has done something very shady and he has to now justify to himself and to the audience the reasoning behind this. Like, that is not something you would see Picard doing. Of course, you know. So it, you were, it, the episode is early on kind of telegraphing you what to expect. Oh, 100%. And it was just this kind of dive into the the length Cisco was going to go to to, um, you know, win the Romulans over. And I just never expected it to take you didn't expect that sort of thing to happen in an episode of star trek where it's the captain addressing the audience much of it essentially yeah i mean justifying himself to the audience as well it felt like just stylistically a different type of star trek storytelling i mean i could 100 percent imagine an episode like this where the same events happen where we just kind of see it play out in a more standard star trek style like that's what made it feel very radical to me so what was your reaction to the episode though I mean, just being like blown away by the form and the storytelling. And as I said, just that we were seeing a captain being put in very gray territory, which we'd never seen before. Like that felt very radical and new. So uh, it, it, it's interesting. We, we can kind of delve into maybe, as you say, kind of the format of this. But before we get going with this discussion, I, I'm just a little bit of background here. I, I pulled out my Deep Space Nine companion, my trusty mm. companion here. And uh, just a few little notes, but the episode is originally titled Patriots, and the first story... Oh, and I should also add here that the uh, story credit goes to Peter Allen Fields, the teleplay credit goes to Michael Taylor, but as really the draft by Ron Moore is kind of what we see in that format that you referenced to there. Right. It was directed by uh, Victor Lobel. Uh, he did a bunch of uh, other episodes like Who Mourns for Mourn, for the uniform. He did uh, The Killing Game Part 2 as well. And um, he actually had some very interesting insights on just the way that he staged the reading of the Captain's Log with Avery Brooks. And he was just talking about how Avery is the kind of actor who says, just tell me exactly what you want, and then he delivers. And so that was interesting. But the episode is originally about Jake, quote-unquote, watergating Shikar. They <laughs> quickly moved away from that because I think they realized it's like, I don't know how interesting that would be. And they decided, well, why don't we do something about Jake watergating Cisco? And it had a lot to do with Garrick, but they eventually, they actually tried to break the story four or three times. And they just realized that there's no real conflict there. And like, we always know that, you know, Ben's the super experienced guy and Jake is still this young kid. And they always had trouble getting like legit conflict going between those two because it's just more of that healthy relationship. But Garrick was there from the start. They got rid of the Jake format 
And after they were struggling so much with trying to figure out how to do this episode, Ron Moore says he was just drinking scotch one night and it came to him. Let's have Cisco kind of recount it through the captain's log here. And I think, as you had mentioned, you know, this is kind of one of those episodes telegraphing to the audience that this is going to be a little bit different. And I do like the obvious indicators of that, you know, with, with Cisco slowly getting um, more and more disrobed as the episode uh, goes on, perhaps, you know, bearing his soul, so to speak. And I, I, I just think that, you know, as you say, is kind of a, a radical departure. We've never seen an entire episode take place within a captain's log either. No. No, and it's actually, again, seems so simple, but I, I remember when you and I talked about um, just a Discovery episode, I think it's Obo for Charon, where the um, the Universal Translator went crazy, and we were like, why has no one done this before? This feels like the kind of thing you go, why was there no TNG episode like this? I think it's kind of a missed opportunity in Obo for Charon, because they kind of resolved it after, what, mm. like 12 minutes or something? But I, th- I think we less got than that, that spear yeah. data. Yeah, well, true, yeah. Uh. But yeah, no. So this one, I, I I'm interested in, in asking you some of the questions that this episode raises as well. And, and Garrick features so prominently in this one. I don't know if there could have been like another character in the Star Trek universe who would have been able to act as this type of foil for the captain. And I'm not just talking about like you know Garrick's background as a spy, but more like the the character traits that we know of him. And, and do you think that there is, is there anyone else that might pop to mind from the other series or even from within Deep Space Nine that could have worked in a similar not not a directly analogous role, but like a similar role that would really push the captain to his or her extremes it's tough because in this episode garrick is very much like a devil figure um and that cisco is making a deal with the devil here and the 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 roots that um garrick will take cisco has to wear with it you know on his kind of on his sleeve for the rest of his life um i'm trying to think of a character who brings that level of um boy um i don't know that I think this is part of the reason why Garrick endures so much as a unique character and fan favorite as well. I, I think Andrew Robinson is about like 75% of that, his performance mm. and just the annotation that he uses when delivering his lines. But I just think there's something unique about this character. And I don't, I don't think another character throughout the series would have had just the, uh, the, the figurative backbone to provide this from a storytelling basis. No, I mean, you could make some sort of argument for Q, maybe, but he falls more into, like, trickster god territory than what Garrick is offering. As in morally compromising one of the characters. I don't think Q could have necessarily morally compromised Picard, although would you say that maybe he did that to a certain degree with Riker in that episode where he got Riker got Q powers? Sure. An episode that I have only the vaguest of memories of, but sure, I'm willing to go down that road. I think that was hide and cue. Yeah, that's hide and cue for sure. All I remember is adult Wesley. That was the dumbest cue pun out of all the episodes. Yeah, yeah, I don't really even get it. But um, no, there's something about Garrick that there's such a seductive quality to him, which is what you want in an episode like this. Um, I don't know of a villain that has that sort of seductive qualities and is also... Like you see throughout this, Garrick is <laughs> very, very dangerous and really makes no effort to hide the fact that he's going to do very dark things throughout this story. And it's Cisco having to 
often look the other way or just kind of maybe tell himself that, well, maybe it won't go that way. It's a lot of, again, justifying his actions throughout the episode. And I don't, Q wouldn't pose this level of threat. Like Q might do something mischievous, but he's not going to do the things that Garrick does in an episode like this. The the only other character I I wonder that might've been able to pull this off though is Quark. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I think I think that could have been the only other one because I I know what you're saying with regards to Q. It's more the trickster stuff where Quark could be dangerous, like legit dangerous at times. I'm thinking I I, I believe the episode was Invasive Procedures, in which uh, he essentially lets the station go unarmed so that folks can uh, take the Dax symbiont out of Jedzia. And now that that's one of the moments that sticks out for me as well, or even when. Garrick gets involved with, you know, selling arms on behalf of Cubs and Gala. Like, there, there's some moral oh, you compromising. Quark. You mean Quark. Oh, yeah. 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 Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, um, so, let me ask you this, Cam. Why why get involved with Garrick? Well, doesn't Cisco realize about the risk of doing this? Or does the fact that he has his back up against the wall at the very start of the episode, as he is delivering the casualty list into the wardroom, he, he just realizes, I, I, I've got nothing less to, left to lose, you know? Like, we're going to, you know, fall into disrepair. We're going to lose this war if I don't do something radical, so to speak. Well, I think Cisco is at a point of just being completely overcome. You know, he says right at the start of the episode, he's like, what day is it? Like, he can't even keep track of what day it is. So that kind of shows you that this is a character that's very overwhelmed. And he's carrying, you know, so much on his shoulders with, as you said, the casualty list. The the teaming up with Garrick thing, I, I think for him, he sees it as a necessary evil, not to uh, quote the name of a, another DS9 episode. But it seems like the sort of thing, I think he goes in thinking he can utilize um, Garrick's spy tactics and connections. I don't know that he goes in... With the expectation, though, of the lengths Garrick is willing to go to make something happen. Do you think Cisco was doomed from the moment he approached Garrick with this proposition? Or was it one of those instances where he could have backed away at a certain point and then he realized he was just in too deep? Like, I I just wonder if there's... There's one other moment that maybe I'll just answer the question that I'm asking you. Um, but um, when finally Garrick approached him about the biomimetic gel and said mm-hmm. 200 liters of this and um, Cisco didn't want to do that. But I think after he said yes to that, in which it's something that could be used for bioweapons, genetic experiments, I think he realized he was completely all in. I think leading up to that, though, he could have gotten out of it. I, I, I don't think he had done anything too too egregious that he you know what wasn't all in at that point but are we then taking some value away from garrick because i think garrick has the ability to kind of get his claws into cisco um because he kind of teases him in and you know says oh you know i have some contacts okay all my contacts were killed but hold up hold up we can still make this happen because cisco's willing to kind of say okay well Maybe this isn't going to work out after those operatives are killed. It's Garrick's the one that's like, hold up. I think I may have some other ideas. So it often feels like he's kind of flirting with the idea of working with Garrick, but Garrick's the one who's often taking control of the situation. Well, maybe I'll counter that with suggesting, does that take away culpability on the part of Ben? Because I I honestly think Ben totally deserves 
whatever albatross this hangs around his neck moving forward. Oh, I don't think it removes it because ultimately this was Cisco going to Garrick about tricking the Romulans into joining the war. Um, so to me, no, as soon as you are involving someone like Garrick into the actual act of doing this, you are responsible for whatever happens. But I do think Garrick is the one who at a certain point um, is going to go off. I mean, if you can't control Garrick, he is uh, he goes pretty um, MIA or uh, AWOL on this one. Garrick knows what he's doing, though. Like, yes, the, the man is a spy master. Like he he he's done this sort of stuff before, like getting people to do things that he wants. Like he he's invested in this. He he wants the Dominion out of Cardassia. Like I I, I get it. Um, I don't know. Th- th- this episode really is kind of a showcase. I is this the biggest showcase episode for Garrick at work? You know, doing the spy craft. It's gotta be up i think it has to be right i think it has Um, to be number one though yeah i mean in terms of seeing him in actual spy tactics yeah i would think so there there are other Um, stand up standout episodes uh you know like the wire you know like or or even like um by inferno's light you know for example but i i think this is the one where we're actually seeing him you know employ his spy tactics uh in a way we really had not before or since well it showed before you'd see like kind of little glimpses of stuff you know where he would suddenly like execute someone very coldly and you'd be like oh like this seems like not the lovable garrick that i see week to week on tv um this was the episode though that really revealed the darkness within this character and just the fact the thing is like even go outside of this episode go the many episodes before this Cisco had a pretty good read on Garrick all along. Wouldn't you agree? I would say his um, suspicions of Garrick were uh, quite valid, yeah. And so the fact that he's willing to overlook those suspicions in this episode, to me, is why the the responsibility comes back to Cisco. Because we have many episodes leading up where Cisco doesn't trust Garrick, has seen the things Garrick's done, he's heard the rumors. So the fact he's willing to go to him now shows that you know, so much of this episode is about, you know, what cost is he willing to to take and all this sort of thing. And I think even when he goes to him, like, he has to know deep down, even if he won't admit it, even if he doesn't exactly say it to the audience, because Cisco is an unreliable narrator here. I mean, he's going to tell us what he's feeling in this moment, but a lot of it's very emotional. We don't know that he's necessarily able to even convey the actual truth of what happened. Um, but... He has to know that something is going to go askew, potentially, just by bringing him in based on all his past experience. Well, it's interesting in that th- this endeavor starts with Cisco approaching Garrick about finding evidence, mm-hmm. and then it morphs into manufacturing evidence. And, and what's your thought on-, on this? Like, is there something wrong with manufacturing evidence to get the Romulans into the war on false premises? in the event that it would, you know, save billions of lives, potentially? Well, it's so tricky, right? Because you say, yes, he would be saving countless lives by getting the Romulans involved. But the Romulans are very comfortable with where they're at. So you're also asking to sacrifice a lot of Romulan lives. And to me, that's where the question mark really, it's something that I think there's a lot of debate over because... Yeah, I mean, maybe the Romulans would have been okay in the long haul. We really don't know. That's all up in the air because it's never really explained 
how the Dominion feel long-term about the Romulans. So, I mean, it works out well for the Quadrant by the end of the war, but maybe the Romulans would have been better off. Who really knows? Well, uh, let, let's kind of debate that question that is brought up. Let's say uh, the Romulans don't get involved in mm-hmm. the Dominion War, ever. And it's, you know, the, the Klingons, the Federation, in a long, drawn-out war with the Dominion. Do you think the Dominion stands pat after they take over the Klingon Empire and the United Federation of Planets? Do you think they just let, you know, the Romulan Star Empire be as it is? Well, would they at a certain point consider them just allies? Or would do you think they would want to compromise the, Ro- the Romulan cause and bring them under the fold of the Dominion? I, I, to me, I don't think they need allies. The, the Dominion, uh, they've always been established as going forward and bringing order into what they see to be a disorderly galaxy. Uh, to me, whether or not they're allies, I, 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 that doesn't come into the equation just mm-hmm. the way that I've always interpreted them. I think, honestly, and I don't know how the Romulan, Romulans could have not seen this, but I, I think as soon as the Dominion had finished off with the Federation and the Klingons, maybe that war would have stretched out maybe five years or, or you know what have you. Maybe I, I think the Romulans were next, 100%. But was this Cisco's choice to make? Like, was it his right to make that decision to place them in that position? And I think that's the interesting yeah. argument to make yeah. because Cisco is one person. He didn't meet with the entire, you know, Federation Council and bring in Romulan diplomats to discuss <laughs> this. He decided, you know what? We should manufacture the evidence. And I'm sure he got some sign off on this more in the shady, you know, deals department on uh, the Federation. Like, yeah, 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 just get it done, get it done. But Ultimately, it, this was done in um, very questionable channels. Well, if, if your question is, was this Cisco's decision to make? I would say the answer is no. We, we might be results-oriented in thinking, well, they ended the war earlier than otherwise would have happened, or maybe saved the Federation from war by including the Romulans. But I don't think this was Cisco's, you know, decision to make here. No, no, I don't think so at all, no. Yeah. Well, okay. So uh, maybe if we're not on the side of manufacturing evidence here, I, I, I'm curious <laughs> about like, uh, you know, some, okay, re- recall that Hollow Forger, um, Graython Tolar, the, the blue guy throughout this one. Um, do you think it's easier for Cisco to rationalize Tolar's death knowing, you know, that Tolar was going to be executed by the Klingons anyway? 100%. The fact that they had to spring this guy from a Klingon prison, that he stabbed Quark. <laughs> That's another um, moment of Cisco shame throughout this episode is having to bribe Quark to uh, let the uh, charges drop because uh, Cisco would not want to do that in a normal episode of Star Trek. But um, I, I do think that is an element of it. it you know, it's uh, when it's a contact of Garrick's and this guy is obviously very shady and <laughs> potentially violent. I think it makes it a lot easier for Cisco to just go, okay, well, I'm not happy about this, but collateral damage. Um, it was interesting when, you know, Garrick told Tolar to go back to his room and I'll be there later to say hello. And like Tolar goes scurrying out of the hollow suite. Like, I was like, what does he have planned? <laughs> like, Well, and that's the thing. Cisco does not really react to that. If I'm Cisco, I'm like, excuse me what (laughs) what are you gonna do to this man we've already had that scene where they talk about um like putting explosives on the door of the guy's room 
And Cisco's like, you didn't really. And he's like, let's not worry about that minutia. <laughs> it's like, no, no, let's worry about this. Are we really like putting explosives on doors in, on, on my station? But again, Cisco doesn't ask those questions. And I find that fascinating. It's how much, you know, there's so many scenarios in this whole journey with Garrick where Cisco doesn't ask questions. He just kind of gives, you know, concerned looks or looks tired. <laughs> He's spending the entire episode compartmentalizing everything that he does, you know, and maybe uh, I, we have kind of the, the iconic, you know, moment at the very end where, you know, he, he says, I, I lied, I cheated, I'm an accessory to murder, but the most damning thing of all is that I think I can live with it and I mm-hmm. do it all again, which it, it, it's fascinating to me because, uh, so in, in the Deep Space Nine companion, Iris Steven Bear said that that last moment was uh, kind of an homage to the uh, film version of The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, in which, you know, Jimmy Stewart's like, yeah, yeah, I, uh, I murdered him, and I can live with that. But mm. in actuality, he can't. Like, he can't live with that. He, he meant it more as kind of Cisco showing some vulnerability there, and that Cisco really deep down can't live with it. And I think that's what you think of with your typical, you know, Starfleet lead, but in this case, this Cisco that we know, he, he's a man who had been building up to these like more and more extreme methods as the series went on. I personally think that, you know, Ben is somebody who can live with this. What about you? I think so, too. Um, I think he's going to struggle with it. I don't think it's like he'll be sleeping that well that night. Um and the cost will weigh on him. I'm sure by the end of that Dominion War, he's <laughs> well beyond exhausted and emotionally spent on this entire journey and is going to carry this with him, although he does jump into the fire cave. So who knows beyond that? <laughs> um, <laughs> we're kind of like robbed because I feel like the story of Cisco, if he doesn't jump into the fire cave, it's really interesting as to how the, you know, potential PTSD of that entire war experience would have impacted him just in, you know, Starfleet life going forward. But we don't get any of that, unfortunately, because I think that would actually be interesting to know about. Um, that should but, be uh, season eight of uh, Deep Space Nine, the animated version that they did for the What We Left Behind documentary. <laughs> right. So a lot of counseling sessions with Esri. I've always honed in on the way Cisco says the, I, you know, I could live with that or, and, um, the, the way he says it the first time, it's kind of like a, I can live with this. And then the second time, the pronunciation is so strange. It's not like a, I can live with this. It's kind of like, I don't know. It sounds almost like he's confused as he's saying it. Like he doesn't quite even know. And he's not, it's very ambiguous um, the way he pronounces it. And I've always found that very interesting in the performance. And that I think a lot of it is the, it's left to the viewer to interpret how he exactly feels. But I agree with you. I think Cisco carries this with him. And I think that's actually important to the Star Trek brand as a whole in that we can talk about, you know, so many criticisms of DS9 as well, as you said, you know, the Gene Runbury vision and what have you. But I think the fact that Cisco, I think, is going to carry this is a sign of the fact that he is, you know, a true Star Trek captain type. He, you know, he believes in the Star Trek utopia. It's the fact that he's going to struggle with this. I think if he wasn't going to, and he was a Garrick type, that's when you would have much more mm. of an issue in terms of the Roddenberry concept of the Star Trek captain and the you know Federation and Starfleet. Now, I think we can both agree, or maybe you disagree, but Captain Picard would never have gone down this path. Is that kind of your interpretation of that character in particular? 
Yeah, I was thinking about that. I could I could see Janeway doing it. I could see Archer doing it. Maybe even Kirk. I, I, I just, I don't ever see Picard, you know, ha- having an episode like this. Well, the closest thing I think we saw Picard to this sort of territory is probably I Borg, right? Where he's going to potentially poison the Borg. I, I, the other one that I'll float your way, and the, the stakes are much smaller, but uh, the perfect mate in which um, they, they imply quite heavily by the end that um, Picard is compromised and that he couldn't help himself. And he, in fact, mated with uh, the uh, Famke Jensen uh, character. Yeah, that's another. And, and by mated, I, 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 <laughs> I, I, I'm not a biologist. I mean, had sex with. Oh, right, right. Um, yeah, that is another good example. Uh, I, hmm. So it's like, yeah, it seems like a lot of the time um, Picard's journeys are more driven by, in, in some ways, his personal experiences. Because with the Borg thing, it's obviously so tied to best of both worlds. Um, the perfect mate, again, it's his relationship with this woman. The Cisco one is a big picture concept. It is a war that he needs to win. I don't know that we saw Picard deal with like a circumstance that exists outside of himself as much. I wonder if there was uh, an episode in here that could have just been all about, you know, uh, Patrick Stewart comes to the show for a guest star spot and it's about Picard trying to convince Cisco to go to Starfleet and admit what he did. You know, I like it mm. kind of giving him a bit of that dressing down that he gave Wesley in the first duty. Well, it would be fascinating to have had a Picard guest appearance in this Dominion War season um, and actually come in and like propose like an argument against Cisco's tactics. And I, I guess maybe they don't want to do that because so much of the audience is like, we should be listening to Picard. Um, yeah. Whereas like Cisco's obviously the character who's a little more um, unconventional in his behavior. So the show wants him to kind of assume the lead here. But I do think it would have been interesting just to have that dueling philosophy episode. Well, I, I just think Patrick Stewart was way too busy making that mastermind money. <laughs> I'm sure it bought a very nice beach house. <laughs> yes. Yes, it did. So, and he got um, to keep the And he got to keep the dune buggy. <laughs> Argus, I think it was its <laughs> name. Yeah. Um, another thing that I, I, I wanted to bring up, though, is uh, Stephen McCaddy's uh, performance as Vrenek. And it, it's a very iconic performance, mostly with the it's a fake delivery. But this seems kind of like a Romulan that we haven't seen before, though. And his introduction might be one of the best introductions for any one-off character in all of Star Trek, where he essentially says, uh, yes, Decorated combat officer, widower, father, and the man who started the war with the Dominion. And I just think that, like, when I heard him uh, just deliver that gut punch right there and just Avery Brooks kind of rolls his eyes halfway, like, I just thought that was just, that is how you introduce a character. Yeah, it's a great intro. And I really enjoy the fact that they introduce this character saying, you know, he um, wants to, you know, stay, you know, on friendly terms with the Dominion. He doesn't want to join the war and all this. So immediately they're se- they're setting this character up to be unreasonable. But I like that when we actually have the scenes of him and Cisco talking, he's conveying his points in ways that make sense to the audience. Like he doesn't come across as 
like it could be so easy to write him as a very one note. I'm just going to argue yeah. for the sake of arguing character, which we've seen plenty of those in the history of Star Trek. Um, but I like that we don't have the sense that this is an unreasonable man, just a guy who sees things very differently the way, than the way Cisco sees them. Well, it's always annoying, like when you have the antagonist, where you you know that their point of view is just plain wrong. But yeah. at least with with this, I understand his point of view. It's like um, we, we have an agreement with the Dominion. We'd rather just watch our uh, enemies take each other out. Like why why not? You know, I I, I get where he's coming from. But McCaddy's performance is just interesting. Like I, I believe he's a Canadian actor, but he's kind of speaking with almost this sort of u.s southern drawl to like a certain degree and it's just it's not like the typical romulan even though he's very romulan in like his demeanor though yeah i i noticed that as well and that i don't i feel like i've kind of become fairly educated in the romulan school of acting you often see you know a lot of the tng or the um you know uh, other uh, star trek iteration versions of Romulans in the Berman era they all have kind of a similar kind of delivery a lot of the time I feel like his is a little unconventional like his Romulan does feel kind of strange honestly like that whole it's a fake line that delivery is really (laughs) weird like it's not the sort of thing I feel like would have passed on a lot of other Star Trek shows they would have been like uh can we try something a little different like they're very much letting character actors do weird things with the dialogue uh, did you know that the Romulan School of Acting has now tapped a new instructor? Uh, his name is Elnor. <laughs> the School of Non-Acting. Yeah. But um, I, it's interesting with the it's a fake delivery, though, because it's not like it's like this meme that eventually just popped up in like the last five or ten years. I remember when this episode aired, people were remarking on it. Like, I'm just wondering how much was it like... <laughs> That, that's like McCaddy was giving uh, the director, uh, Victor Lobel, what the director wanted or maybe what the script called for. Or it was just like, ah, we only have time for one take. We got to go on to the next shot. Good enough. I just wonder if it said something like he hisses. It's a fake. And that's what they got. Yeah, it, it, it's interesting. Like just <laughs> if you go on YouTube, you can watch a video where it's just him saying it's a fake for like 10 hours. And <laughs> It's interesting when, like, because I don't think the line delivery is necessarily as weird as its reputation that it has now would give you. Like, I can understand within the context of how that scene plays out, why it wouldn't quite seem so strange to, say, the director or the crew. But, like, it, when you put it on screen and you just do that quick cut to it, it, it is it, it really does pop out. One, maybe that's a thing. It's like, maybe the delivery was kind of strange, but they said, hold on, if we just play that in isolation, people are going to remember it. If he, if it had just cut to him and it was a very flat, like, it's a fake, yeah. you, it would not <laughs> stick with you the way it is. And that's, um, that is also, I believe, the last time we see that character. And then shortly after, Garrick has him killed. So it's like, that's the final impression he gets to leave on the audience for, before we find out what ultimately happened to him. Does he have... A, a very, very, very valid point when he introduces himself to Cisco and describes Ben as the man who started the war with the Dominion. I think so. I mean, is Cisco kind of like mostly responsible for this war, or is it is it mostly Ducats? Is it you know Starfleet Command that says, yeah, you should keep going through that wormhole and interacting with other aliens in the Gamma Quadrant, despite the Dominion saying, don't do that. 
Well, I always feel like my perception is skewed on it because of the fact we follow Cisco through the show and that it's his actions that I take as leading into the Dominion War. And yes, there are other factors. And obviously, there, I'm sure there's a lot of behind the scenes Starfleet stuff that I would love to know in some way, shape or form that isn't tied into a novel or comic book. Um, but I, I would have to believe that it can't just be Cisco starting the war. That is very unlikely. Well, think about it. Like uh, the Klingons really just destroy the Cardassian Union as we know it. Um, and this is after they've been infiltrated by a changeling in the form of General Martok. And we, we see this decimated empire seek out new power through the Dominion. We, we have the ships pouring in through the wormhole for you know weeks and weeks and weeks, reinforcing everything. And then Cisco decides, well, I'm just going to mine the wormhole. Like, who do you think is most culpable for the start of the Dominion War? Hmm. Well, who do you think it is? I'm curious where you stand on this. I think it's the Founders. I, I really do. Yeah. They, they're the ones that infiltrated the Klingons. They got the Klingons uh, all hot and bothered over uh, perceived threats from, you know, the over the Cardassians. And, you know, Bob's your uncle. Well, I mean, that's kind of the way I've felt, too, in that ultimately, you know, you have, you know, the um, Jem Hadar popping up earlier in like season two or something like that. It feels like the Dominion are kind of making their threat known initially, you know, on uh, kind of low key terms. But it's kind of this building threat. I do think, though, like Cisco's the one who's ultimately the one leading the charge more in a defense position. Uh, but in terms of actually starting the war, I mean, to me, that's the Dominion. It's just a, a, a great uh, little dig that Vreenik was able to uh, get into uh, his sparring partner there. Um, I, 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 and, and speaking of him, though, you know, like, uh, and you mentioned it, like, eventually Vreenik is, you know, obliterated in a bomb that Garrick plants on his shuttle. And, you know, uh, Cisco realizes this and confronts Garrick, which one of the best scenes in Deep Space Nine is Cisco confronting Garrick there. And look, he, he Garrick just lays it out to him like, look, you, you got what you wanted. And all it cost was the life of one Romulan senator, one criminal, and the self-respect of a Starfleet officer. I think that line is one of my all-time favorite lines in all of Star Trek Deep Space Nine. Do you think this underlines a shift in how people would perceive Garrick? Because leading up to this, we've had so many episodes where, um, you know, he's kind of teasing his behind the scenes, um, you know, work as a spy. We do have stuff where he's like torturing Odo. That's pretty dark. <laughs> but I feel like a moment like this is really underscoring a level of evil this guy is capable of that. I don't know that we've gotten there before. This feels like maybe an extra step forward for that character i i still think the odo torture is what yeah. did it. like we have seen we we literally have seen garrick vaporize people like with you know phasers before uh i i you know what? I'll, I'll throw this back at you do you think this is the one that really changed people's perceptions of ben cisco mm, of ben cisco i would say so yes i don't well hold on here's the question um, I'm asking myself as well as you is we have him, you know, gassing the McKee planet. Um, I think that's the one that would change perceptions first. 
And this just felt like that extra step forward. Like it was kind of yeah. a grander scale, taking some a decision like what he did with the McKee and expanding that into a broader canvas, you know, an entire arc of this entire war. I think those are the two moments that people point to the most. And you're right, the, the gassing of the planet comes first. It just, it, um, you can understand cisco's willingness to do that with regards to the planets but this just seems as if it's something um far more compromising you know for him to pursue you know because because he he literally admits that he's an accessory to murder by the end of it all yeah i don't think he lost as much sleep over the mckee incident no no he's like that was for cassidy <laughs> well, actually, you know what? On a smaller scale, I remember being actually really blown away when, um, you know, Cassidy was sent off to prison without Cisco interfering in some way, because that's what you expect from a TV show, right? <laughs> it, it, everything gets resolved by the end. Yeah. Yeah. Like I was genuinely shocked that Cisco didn't do that. And I, I, I remember at the time thinking like, I think some of the other captains would have somehow hand waved away these charges. <laughs> So more broadly, where this episode kind of sits in the spectrum of Star Trek. Like, I remember we were at a convention, um, and uh, Richard Arnold, who was Gene Roddenberry's longtime assistant, he was saying that, you know, I, I, you know, I forget if it was an interview or if it was a convention, but I, I'm pretty sure it was Richard Arnold who was saying that this is not an episode that, you know, like Gene would have ever allowed to happen. You know, it just, it, it, it doesn't fit within kind of the ideals of Star Trek. Cam... And, and, oh, you know what? I'm actually thinking, um, it's actually, it was Jordan Hoffman uh, at the convention who actually said that. And uh, for those that don't know, he facilitates like a lot of the um, events that go on throughout the convention. But Kim, it, is this still Star Trek to you? Can, can this still be an episode of Star Trek, despite the fact that we don't have our lead character acting as the Boy Scout that we're used to? I honestly don't see why not. To me, like Star Trek has always been about a utopia, and that's so much of what DS9 is. What do you have to do to, you know, maintain a utopia? So to me, it feels like it's examining the concept of what the show's all about in the first place. It seems like a lot of the arguments against it are like we don't want to explore the reasons for why this world exists. We just want this world to exist, which that's fine, but it's also a very superficial approach to this world. Well, we talked about it last week, though, when there's that line that Cisco had in the Maquis two-parter, in which she said, yeah, it's easy to be a saint when you're living in paradise. And what happens when they kind of take away all those kind of comforts that we're used to? And look, if you're thrust into war, uh, you're going to do some very extreme things that you would not do in peacetime either. Yeah, well, yeah, exactly. I mean... This episode has so many lines, too, where, you know, Cisco says things like whatever it takes to accomplish a goal or, um, you know, the uh, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Like it's so much of he knows he has to try to maintain, you know, the status quo. But what cost does that take? And to me, I just don't understand why. You know, and I understand there is a contingent of fans, although I think fewer and fewer as the years go by who weren't a fan of what DS9 did. But to me. It seems necessary for the longevity of the franchise to really tackle what makes the franchise special. I, do, do you think, okay, so if you go into like imdb.com, which you know my, uh, I, I, I'm not 
always 100% uh, in with that kind of way of ranking episodes, but it is the highest rated episode amongst IMDb users. Mm-hmm. Is this, is that surprising to you considering how polarizing this episode has the potential to be? Or do you think it just speaks for itself as an hour of drama that maybe you just can't deny um, how explosive it is, how gripping it is? Well, I think it speaks to the fact that DS9 was not the most popular of Trek shows at the time, but has since become much more loved. It has a much more passionate fan base. It may not be as big as the TNG fan base, but I feel like the DS9 one is incredibly passionate. And this episode exemplifies everything DS9 was trying to do. Is this one necessarily, I don't know, if you had to pick like one Deep Space Nine episode, would this be your go-to? Well, it's funny when you were saying it's the highest rated. I was actually surprised Trials and Tribulations wasn't the highest because um, that was the only other one. I thought maybe Far Beyond the Stars as well. Um, I, I'm I, I'm going to ask you. You have to pick one Deep Space Nine episode. And, and it's just it's your own personal go-to. It's, it's not one that you say to some rando, you know, this is uh, this is how you get into Deep Space Nine. You know, like what what do you think it is for you? Uh, um, boy, um, I would think I would probably come down on this, this being the representative of DS9, because when I look at Trials and Tribulations is probably, I think, the most fun episode of the series and the one that's probably the most fun just to rewatch. But it also is so much evoking the spirit of original series that it doesn't feel as much representative of what makes DS9 such a great show. So if I'm being, you know, told to pick kind of my ultimate DS9 episode, I think I would say this one. Okay. Um, I think it's tough. And, and it's a good question to ask if it's tough. I, I might just have to go with The Visitor. You know, that is just such mm. a powerful... And it, it's more of a reaffirming story with a lot of very, a lot of sadness within it. But ultimately, it, it feels more of a Star Trek story as well. It is interesting, though, that when we look at The Visitor and we look at um, this episode in The Pale Moonlight... So much of the strength of um, DS9 was it being an ensemble show, and neither of those are really their best ensemble showcases. <laughs> no, exactly. It would be, you know, it, it got to be a great ensemble because they would give, you know, like these episodes to just what, you know, specific characters, and they would just give them so much to do with it, like just so much, you know, whether it's just scenery chewing. Like, this must have been like a, a great show for those actors to be in that ensemble because I think you get. The feeling that um, the writers cared about giving everybody something worthwhile to do, you know, mm-hmm. whereas you go on TNG in that writer's room, it was just, it was really like the Picard, Riker, and Data show. You go on Voyager, is really the Janeway, Doctor, and Seven show. TV Space Nine, like everybody, like, look, Quark was getting like multiple episodes a season. Like, Jadzia would get, uh, Kira would always have tons of stuff to do, even though it was the ensemble show as well. I mean, Morn got his own episode. <laughs> Directed by the same director of this one. Where was Mott the Barber's episode on TNG? Touche. And I'm still waiting for Chef to get his own episode from uh, Star Trek Enterprise. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's the thing about what made DS9 so special. And I, I was, again, also just, you know, it's this is an episode that it's so ambitious in terms of the form, in terms of the visual storytelling of it. 
but it is just entirely set within the station. It's not a big expensive episode. You know, Trials and Tribulations, which we named a couple minutes ago, like that's an expensive episode. That's probably their most expensive episode of their run, I would have to imagine. If, if it isn't, it's up there. Um, but this one, it takes such a basic concept for an episode. It's very talky, but finds ways to visually make it incredibly dynamic and iconic. You know, you throw one shot up online from Cisco's personal logs, people know exactly what episode this is. <laughs> I, I before I forget, just the moment where he says "computer, delete that personal log," and the screen just turns black. We had never seen anything like that in Star Trek before. Um, the closest I could think of was the end of "Ship in a Bottle" with the um, you know, uh, holodeck off or whatever Barkley said. Oh, okay, uh, that one. Like, I, I guess I had forgotten the last moments. It's, it's not coming to me, but I, I, I trust you there. Um, so, uh, like. <laughs> I, I, maybe a couple like uh, points. Oh, you know, oh, before I forget as well, you mentioned, you know, this one was relatively kind of economical to make. I, I counted if you take away just like the stock, you know, shots of the station's exterior that they use. Um, I think there are only three VFX shots through this entire episode. I think it was the landing pad sequence, which we're, we're spoiled with the amount of, you know, budget that say discovery or Picard has nowadays. Um, I, I, I'm still just in awe of like, them doing that landing pad sequence uh, from this episode. And then we had two shots of VFX uh, from within the hollow suite as well. Otherwise, you don't need like giant budgets to just make something gripping, though. And I think this one really proves that. Well, I was you know, watching this episode and thinking to myself, I'm surprised you know, a theater troupe hasn't tried to restage this as a play somewhere. Because it feels, uh, you know, they often, so often in the history of Star Trek, hire theatrical actors. And it felt like this is something that could be done as theater. Well, you know what? Uh, unfortunately, COVID ruined my plans to take this one-man show on the road. And yeah, damn you, pandemic. I wanted to ask you about Bashir in this episode, because I thought he was really interesting, where a lot of the ideas that kind of percolate in Cisco's mind about this um, manipulation of the Romulans comes from his conversations with Jadzia and Bashir. And I really enjoy that moment between Cisco and Bashir over the mimetic gel and Bashir's reaction to this. Like, it's not that Captain knows best scenario. You know, he's like demanding these orders in writing. He's going to take up an official complaint. I, I like that they show that Cisco's dirty dealings don't just like pass unnoticed by people, that they yes. do raise suspicions. Well, and Cisco was even anticipating that. He had everything like uh, ready to go. He's like, oh, yeah, I already have it written in uh, formal writing. Yeah, I expect you to make that complaint. Like, I, maybe it's just a testament to Cisco trusting uh, his crew to do the good thing, even while Cisco has to compromise himself. If someone were to complain about um, uh, Picard, who do you think it would be of the main crew? Who'd. <sighs> and actually express it okay. to his face. Ah. Uh... I, I, so I have, I have two that I, I would go to. I, I'd say Crusher, or uh, Dr. Crusher, would be willing to express that to his face. And if you just look at uh, Riker's interactions with Jellicoe, I think Riker's uh, happy to uh, give it to the captain uh, if he really does not agree. <laughs> yes, I, I, could, I can definitely see Crusher. I think that one very... I mean, maybe there is that something about these doctor characters where they do kind of stand outside of the sort of the protocol a little bit where they are more able to call the captains out, out on this sort of stuff, because you can kind of see bones doing that to Kirk a little bit too. 
Um, I, I mentioned Jellicoe, who, of course, was the captain of the Cairo, at least during Chain of Command. Um, and then we did get a Cairo shutout in that it went missing near the neutral zone. But it said that Leslie Wong was the skipper. I, I take that to mean that she was the captain of the ship. It, it was no longer Jellicoe. Was, was that your interpretation? Yeah, the skipper is the captain, right? Yeah, I just, have we heard Star Trek use the term skipper before? Like, I don't think so. I don't think I've heard the term skipper outside of Gilligan's Island. Um, no, on uh, Sopranos, uh, they use that term. Did they? Who did? Oh, you're right. Yeah, yeah that's right. Tony, okay. Tony's uh, skip. They uh, yeah. call him the skip. It seems like an old-timey term. I'm, I'm uh, <laughs> amused that they're using this in the 24th century. Um, I want them to use it more. <laughs> we need we need to bring it back. One of us has to buy a boat. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Let's do a camp. <laughs> and, and then we can sing row, row, row. Your boat. <laughs> and do we have to call it the Chiron? <laughs> yeah, obviously, yes. Yeah. yeah. So, um, and maybe a couple uh, just like small points that, that I uh, want to bring up here just to, as we wrap this uh, baby. But um, got to ask you this. Uh, they mentioned the welcome to the fight party that they were having after the Romulans joined the war. Would you rather go to a welcome to the fight party or join the Star Trek Lower Decks crew with a choo-choo party? Um, a welcome to the fight party doesn't seem that exciting to me. It feels like just like maybe like a lot of toasts. Um. But there's also like kind of a uh, solemnness to it because, I mean, come on, casualty lists are going up. How much fun is this party versus the choo-choo party? There's some mystery there. And I've been told it's off the hook. Like, I feel like I have to go to a choo-choo party. Are they just going to like tease the choo-choo party for eternity? Because I I think like it's best if you don't actually see it. Like if you just get to kind of try to picture it in your own head about like what this sort of magnificent thing could possibly be yeah i think they can only tease it it has to be the thing that you constantly refer to and um you know you can never actually show kind of like vera on cheers or uh maris on fraser yeah yeah exactly like something like that you built it up to a certain degree where you can't ever show it because it's only going to disappoint the viewer yeah um that can't look i i think there is a a, a big reason why this the legacy of this one endures. I, I don't think it is outside the spectrum of Star Trek the way that some people might make the argument for if you're, you know, watching Star Trek Discovery and they show Klingon breasts or have, you know, characters drop in F-bombs. Like, those moments kind of take me outside of the Star Trek spectrum. It's a little weird, and I always think to myself, like, who are they doing this for? Or, like, what's the point? But this one, like, I... I I get it. Like, I, I get what they're trying to do. I just, and props to them for, like, really, you know, landing this. You know, like, this one could have really gone very badly. It could have had, like, huge backlash amongst the fans about Cisco's and Garrick's actions here. But it, it sparked debate. It, 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 we're still debating it, exactly, 23 years later. When it also feels like, you know, had I seen it at the time, it would feel like, I, even if I'm not happy with what Cisco did in this episode... I would have to watch the next episode because I've got to see, you know, how this is going to go. Uh, I, I'm going to double check, but I think the next episode is His Way. So it would be, yes, it was His Way. So it actually kind of a good role uh, for you uh, to pop in that next DVD. It's also the perfect episode to follow this because this is a pretty dark, complex episode. Um, 
I think his way is a good follow-up because it's much lighter and much happier. <laughs> we we might do an episode one of these days where we look at follow-up episodes to like monumental things. You know, like after the wedding episode uh, with Jadzia and Worf, we got Resurrection featuring the return of one Brile from the Mirror Universe. Oh, that's an amazing uh, episode idea because I'm sure okay. there's some like just brutal tonal follow-ups where it's like, how did we get from there to here? There's got to be at least a handful of those. <laughs> Already. Okay, so I think on that note, our assignment is complete. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, we want to hear from you. Jump on over to the Facebook page at facebook.com slash subspace pod. Let us know what you think of In the Pale Moonlight on its 23rd anniversary. Now, Tyler, what are we doing next time? Well, Cam, I, I think we really telegraphed what we're doing next week. Um, Follow-up episodes. I can't wait. I I think this is going to be a lot of fun, and I'm sure we'll have some very appropriate follow-ups and ones that are just like have your head spinning. I think we already teased the best one with Resurrection. <laughs> the best and the worst. Okay, so you can, of course, find us on the Twitter. I'm at Cam, V is in Vrenak Smith. And you can find me at Reportin. That's R, R is in Rod, E-P-O-R-T-O-N. <laughs> Okay, so until next time, the arena is closed. Transfer complete.